Well, again, it's good to see everybody and glad that you're here. Uh, like many of you, uh, Jody and I have, have spent a little bit of time uh, daydreaming about, you know, post-COVID. You know, post-COVID, when we don't have to worry about masks, when we don't have to worry about uh, where you go and all this kind of stuff. And uh, one of the things we, we settled on, or not settled on, but, but at least landed on lately, uh, is uh, we'd love just to take a trip back to Copper Mountain, Colorado. We, we enjoy going out there every couple years. And, um, and so part of our daydream, we started thinking about, okay, the last time we went, we did this and we did that. And we said, you know, we'd kind of like to do this and that again, kind of the same things. We're creatures of habit a little bit. And one of the things we did last time is we rented bikes and we rode from the Copper Mountain area about five miles to a little town called Frisco. Frisco is absolutely charming if you're ever uh, able to get out there. Restaurants, outdoor concerts, things like that. And uh, we reflected on that bike ride. And it was an interesting bike ride. We're not cyclists. We don't cycle around town here a lot. We prefer, you know, two feet as our mode of transportation or four wheels. We typically don't do two wheels much. But anyway, we did it. And five miles and... I noticed as we were going, it was a beautiful bike ride. It was almost effortless. We were riding by this beautiful mountain stream. Uh, the the, the uh, sky was this beautiful blue. The, it was 68, 70 degrees maybe uh, in the middle of July, which is wonderful when you're, when you're from this area. And then it hit me. Jody's in front of me. She's just, yay, hair blowing in the wind. Hair's blowing over my head. And... We were going downhill. And from that moment, I started worrying. Okay, we're going to get downhill. We're going to walk around town, spend time around town, do a lot of things. But then we're going to have to ride this bike back up this hill. And, 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 and we tried. You know, we, we, we actually did. We stopped and started, stopped and started, stopped and started, as most people did, riding back up from Frisco to Copper, except a couple of Olympic athletes that passed us uh, riding theirs. And so Jody had this great idea. We want to do the same thing again, except this time, let's rent a bike that has the motor in it. You know, that you pedal a little bit and the motor kind of kicks in when you're ready to kick out. And so that might be the plan. We'll give you an update on how it goes. Uh, Power-assisted cycling. Um, we could train for it, but we'll probably do the power-assisted cycling. So today, we wrap up our series called Text Context. And in this series, we've been taking a look at a couple of Bible verses that are often uh, taken out of context. And when they're taken out of context, they're misapplied and misinterpreted. And today, what we're doing is we're taking a look at a text that, when properly applied, reminds us that when we face our spiritual battles, when we climb our spiritual mountains, that God will give us what we need to be victorious. God will give us the power we need. We don't have to fight it on our own. God will give us strength, courage, and power for the journey. The verse is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And this verse reads, no temptation, by the way, temptation is often translated testing or trial. So no temptation, testing, or trial has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're attempted, he will also provide a way so that you can endure it. Now, the way this verse is most often misunderstood is in the broad idea that you may have heard people say before, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's really more of a reduction of 
the way the verse is supposed to be applied, and so it starts to skew its meaning a little bit. The reality is, and we know this reality, is that people go through really hard times. People go through very challenging times. We've talked before about how God does not cause evil to happen to people, but God does allow suffering and testing and trials to come into our lives. And we experience hard things in our lives that are sometimes really hard for us to handle. We are all at some point going to succumb to physical death unless the Lord returns first, and we will not be able to physically handle this. I know people who have gone through very difficult, challenging, emotional battles, and they've struggled to handle it emotionally. I heard someone share this past week who used to be a chaplain at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis. He said there was a stretch when he saw so many children die that he couldn't handle it. He had to back away from the work for an extended period of time. It was more than he could handle emotionally. If you think Christianity is going to promise you perfect health, a full bank account, and no problems, then you've bought into a false gospel. So how do we understand this passage in context? And what does it really mean? And more importantly, how does this passage give us a sense of lift and power in our quest to be faithful to our Lord and to draw near to Him? Well, let me invite you to take out your teaching notes and turn or launch your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-13. through And before I read the text in its entirety, let me encourage you to check out the resources I've provided for you in your handout. And as well, um, let me just, before we begin reading, let me give just a little bit of context uh, to 1 Corinthians. We could spend all day just talking about context of this, of this book. 1 Corinthians was written by St. Paul to the church in Corinth of ancient Greece. The church in, in Corinth was primarily made up of Gentile converts who had been involved in all kinds of pagan religions and practices. And in summary, the church at Corinth was a hot mess. I mean, they were just a mess. Craig Bloomberg, a professor of New Testament, describes it this way. Let me read it for you. Imagine a church racked by divisions. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his own band of followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of their freedom in Christ to behave such a way. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant immorality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers as the Christian ideal, even for married couples. Still other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreements about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion. One scholar wrote that the city of Corinth was like L.A., New York, and Vegas just all wrapped up into one. Now, this doesn't necessarily sound like a description of a New Testament book as much as it does for an edgy series that's premiering on Netflix. So into this hot mess, St. Paul steps in and tries to guide the church into truth. And this specific section of 1 Corinthians 13 1 Corinthians, is dealing with the issue of exercising self-control in the Christian life. There was this sense of struggle between what is acceptable behavior 
for a Christian and the tension that lies between freedom in Christ and the natural human tendency to slip into a legalistic code of behavior that we sometimes simply call legalism. All issues that 21st century Christians need to understand in our lives today, right? What is acceptable social behavior for the 21st century Christian? How do we resist legalism? You know, the religion that says, you know, know this, know that, no dancing, no card playing, and so forth and so forth. It's the human tendency to think that holiness works by our works, or it works from the outside in versus the inside out. What is the Christian's relationship to the world? How can we draw near to God in times of testing and trial so that we are strengthened in our faith and so that we don't falter and are weakened? So let's read the passage, starting with verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, Be careful that you don't fall because no temptation has seized you, overtaken you, except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at the problem and then I simply want us to look at the promise, the problem. Paul lays out for the Israelites, really, the plight of the Israelites as a warning to the church in Corinth. We may remember their story. As God's chosen people, God, God, through Moses, led the people of Israel through the sea and eventually to the brink of the promised land with Moses. And then we know in a future generation, they went into the promised land. The salvation and the protection and the provision of God was on them. This is why Paul said they were baptized into Moses. It means they followed the leadership of Moses and that in the Exodus, their identity as a people, it was formed and it was shaped. In the same way, when we walk through the waters of baptism, our identity is marked. It is shaped for Christ. But the Israelites were not faithful to God. They strayed and specifically they followed the idols and the gods of the surrounding nation. They participated in pagan rituals, many of which featured sexual immorality, which is why Paul brings it up over and over and over. And in quite an understatement, Paul writes, God was not pleased with them. You think? What an understatement. The generation of Israelites, most of them did not make it to the promised land and most of them died in the wilderness. 
let me hit the pause button just for a second. Spiritual predecessors can often be a model to follow, but at times they can be warnings from which we should flee. Spiritual predecessors can be a model for us to follow, but at times they can be a warning from which we should flee. In the 21st century church, we have wonderful models from our spiritual predecessors to follow, and we have warnings from which we should flee. The 19th and 20th century church in North America, the tolerance of racism and participation in racial injustice from turning a blind eye to twisting Scripture to support it is a behavior of which the church today, from which the church today should repent and flee. The church's reduction of discipleship to attendance on Sunday rather than being on mission for our Lord 24-7 is a behavior. It's a warning from which we should flee. The church's tendency to form idols out of programs, consumerism and worship, buildings, and celebrity pastors is a warning from which we should flee. As the church of today, we need to make sure we are living in such a way that we're an example and a model, and not a warning from which future generations should flee. We need to be reminded of our responsibility to future generations. Paul is saying to the Christians now in Corinth, you're running the risk of being just like the Israelites. You're running the risk. You're running the risk of playing footloose and fancy free with idolatry regarding pagan idols. Now, the specific issue of this text is an issue that we don't face necessarily today, right? It's the issue of eating meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols in pagan rituals that included all sorts of immoral behavior. The quote-unquote strong Christians, and those listening online uh, or or later, uh, I'm using the air quotes here, the quote-unquote strong Christians said absolutely no problem. That freedom in Christ allowed them to eat the meat. The meat itself wasn't tainted. And technically there's nothing wrong with the meat, but too many of them started assimilating the pagan practices with it. Some also bought into this sense of dualism, that the spirit is good, but the body is bad. And those who bought into dualism applied it in one of two different ways, of two extremes. Some said since the body is bad, we should deny all pleasures and live a very austere life. And others on the other extreme, as you can imagine, said, well, hey, since the spirit is good, and the body is bad, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry all we want. It's, on the, it's what's on the inside that counts with God. That's how they were applying it. That is the context of this passage. So Paul says, don't be like your spiritual predecessors. Don't, for, don't fall for idolatry. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't test God. And interesting, in the, in the four warnings he lays out, don't grumble. Now what? You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and then grumble. You know, who, if you were honest, I bet everybody's grumbled just a little bit today. Has everybody, anybody want to say they didn't grumble just a little bit? So what does he mean? Grumbling here was referencing the people of Israel. As they stepped into their freedom, they started grumbling and saying, no, we want to go back to being enslaved. We want to go back to Egypt. It was better there. So grumbling is questioning the provision and the protection and the faithfulness and the hand of God on your life. Grumbling is, in this context is questioning 
the sovereignty of God to work God's plan in you even when you don't understand it. Paul says, don't do that. The same warning is for us today. This is the same warning. In our focus verse for today, Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And this is both a warning and a comfort, right? It's a warning. The temptations that were before our spiritual predecessors, that were before the Israelites, the first century church, and everybody in between are the same ones that we face today. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were tempted by the certain. The forbidden fruit was good for food, the serpent told Eve. In other words, lust of the flesh, gluttony, laziness, drunkenness, sexual immorality. The fruit was pleasing to the eye. So lust of the eye, greed, materialism, envy, jealousy, to see all you want and to want all you see. The fruit was going to enable them to have wisdom and to be like God. The pride of life, self-centeredness, arrogance, and racism. And on and on and on. The warning here is don't think that you're not vulnerable to temptation and sin. Christians through the ages have been tempted like this and sadly have fallen. It's also a comfort though, right? When we are tempted and tested, we're not alone. There are other believers who can empathize and share with our struggles. They can encourage us and show us a path forward and model how to resist. I always like to tell people there, there are two great myths. No one is like me and everybody is like me. Everyone is like me. No, that's a myth. Your spiritual journey is unique to you and you may face temptation and testing and trial in a unique way, but yet no one is like me. There are other people who have dealt with the same issues that you've dealt with. They can provide help and provide hope. So the big picture on the problem is that temptation is always lurking and it's powerful. Let's get to the promise. When we are tempted and tested, God will provide all that we need to stay faithful to him. This is the actual meaning of the passage. This verse is about our spiritual perseverance. We want this verse to be about our physical or emotional or financial perseverance, but it is not. It is about what we need to stay true to God in a time of testing and temptation. No matter what comes our way, God will give us what we need to be faithful to God and to stand up under temptation and testing. Now notice it says that God will give us a way to stand up under the pressure of temptation. You know, if, if I was honest, my guess is if you were honest, we would really like that verse to read, hey God, just remove the test remove the temptation. Just, just get it away from us. But no, what God says here is I'll give you what you need to stand up. In the video, Jody mentioned Gus. When I walk Gus around town, there are all sorts of temptations that he wants to grab. And, 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 and specifically as a six-month-old puppy, he wants to put them in his mouth, right? So cigarette and cigar butts. You would not believe how many cigarette and cigar butts are around town, and I have to swipe them out of his mouth. Old napkins, old mask, and I'll stop there because I don't want to gross you out, right? But anything. And so what I've gotten used to doing, hey, by the way, if you pass me when I'm walking Gus and I don't see you, it's because my eyes are on the ground one square ahead of him the whole way. 
And so what I've gotten used to doing is looking ahead of him, seeing it, and when he lurches for it, I just overpower him. He's a 10-pound dog. You know, I just kind of yank him back, and we're good to go for now, right? We're, he's going to school soon, and I told the trainer what we need to learn is for him to learn not to go after it without me having to yank him back, but that's a story for another time. I just overpower his will. When you're tempted and when you're tested, God will not overpower your will as a rule. Maybe occasionally. God will not. God wants you to be discipled and God wants you to be trained so that you're faithful and in cooperation with His Holy Spirit working in you, you choose to go another way. If God overpowered our will, then we would never sin, would we? Which brings us to the fork in the road. When temptation comes our way, it's like the proverbial fork in the road. We can give in, and this road leads to sin. Or we can withstand temptation by the power of God, cooperating with our will, and we can become stronger. I chose this picture for us because this is often the way, isn't it? Often when we resist temptation, we're kind of the only one heading that other way and where the crowd is going that way. That's not an unusual picture for a lot of us in life. Back to the power bike that we started with. Just like Jody and I will need power beyond ourselves to make it up the hill next time, we all need power beyond our power to withstand temptation. We need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So I think the question for us as we close is how does God deliver the power, right? I mean, is that where this really just gets down at the end? If St. Paul is true, and I believe the promise is true, that God will give us a way, how does God deliver that power? Let me give you three W's that form a fourth one, and that is, the Word, the Word of God, the preaching of the Word. And by the way, one of the things I always say, I believe I heard Tim Keller say it, and that is simply this, always submit the sermon to the Word of God and, submit your, and if the sermon is submitted to the Word of God, submit your life to the sermon. So one of the ways the Holy Spirit works in us is the Word of God, the preaching and Bible study, the memorization of Scripture and the application of Scripture in a moment's notice. Does anybody remember that old 70s sitcom? And I'm dating myself and I realize it, but Sanford and Son, anybody remember that? All right, so Fred Sanford was the title character, right? Uh, but one of Fred's nemesis always in the show was, uh, what was her name? Ann Esther, right? One of the moments in that show that I'll never forget in my life was Fred bothered Ann Esther one time and Ann Esther looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan, and don't push. She had Scripture ready. Now, she often applied Scripture out of context when it, with Fred. So, but she had Scripture ready. Preaching, Bible study, the witness. And what I mean by the witness there is the witness of friends, the witness of positive models, the witness of accountability in, in relating with others in the journey of life, the work. So we have the Word, we have the witness, and we have the work of the Holy Spirit you know, working within us. And then we have the will. The will, submitting our will to the will of God. 
actively submitting our will to the will of God. As Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. So the question for us this morning is not will God be strong for us in a time of testing and temptation, but will we allow our will and our way to become his will and his way? Will we offer our lives up to God for his healing, his salvation, and his leading? Will we cooperate with his spirit in times of trial and testing to shape us to be the men and the women that he wants us to be? I'd like to close this teaching time this morning with what I call one of those singing prayers. It's a hymn that really is more of a prayer. I'm going to ask our musicians to come, and Hank, come on up. And I've chosen this, this closing song. It's the classic hymn, Have Thine Own Way. And I just want to read to you. I'd like you to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'd just like to read to you the lyrics. Then we'll stand and sing these lyrics together. And as the Spirit leads, I just invite you to apply these lyrics, this singing prayer, to your specific journey today. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Search me and try me, Savior, today. Wash me just now, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, all power, surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with my spirit till all shall see. Christ always, always living in me. Let's sing it together. Let me invite you to stand. Let's sing.